England's holistic publications supporting people in their discovery of spiritual wisdom, holistic health, green living, and the celebration of life, featuring articles, calendar listings, and a directory of community resources available in print and online at innertapestry.org. Support for WERU also comes from Quantum Insulators of Belfast, serving Midcoast, Maine as spray foam specialists, licensed dealers of the Isonine portfolio of spray foam products, including commercial and residential applications with renewable and recyclable content. More information at quantuminsulators.com or 338-3077. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Common Ground Radio with your hosts from Mofka is up next. Clearing by Russell Libby. To clear a field once it has been lost, start by walking through and around. Let it claim your mind. Start slowly. First cut any dead or dying saplings. Prune the pines so you can walk safely. Start brush piles. Keep adding on. Soon you can see through to the other side. Take small steps. You can only hear kinglets if you pause. Look up and find an old blue jay's nest. Follow deer tracks until they're tangled with others. As the clearings grow larger, so do decisions. Sugar maples are easy, syrup and shade. Crooked pines go. Pines with saw logs, even small, stay until there's enough to saw. Brush piles grow. Stop cutting. Walk. Notice the open spaces. When they connect all around, it's almost a field. Keep at it steadily, and then there's a moment of clarity when others can see it too. Good morning and Happy New Year. Uh, Welcome to Common Ground, the monthly radio forum on food and agriculture, hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. I'm Andrew Marshall, Educational Programs Director, and I'm joined in the studio today by my colleagues and friends, Dave Colson and Melissa White-Pillsbury. Early last month on a quiet Sunday, Russell Libby, the longtime Executive Director of MOFCA, left us. Russell succumbed to cancer, which he had been living with for almost two years. He was serene and philosophical, almost beatific about his fate until the very end. But the rest of us are left to rage against the bitter irony and cruelty of losing him to a disease which was a consequence of the ubiquitous pollution and toxicity that he dedicated his life to building safe, ecological, and community-building alternatives to. So today on Common Ground Radio, we at MOFCO would like to invite you to join us in a community celebration of the life of an icon, mentor, sage, and dear friend. If you have a story, remembrance, reflection, poem, any kind of tribute you'd like to share, we invite you to call in and do so. 
We'd like to start off with the presentation that Russell made at the first TEDx Dirigo conference in Portland in 2010, entitled Beyond the Roadrunner Economy. This was Russell's contribution to the TED Talk genre, in which important people with big ideas get a few minutes to distill their work to its essence. The clip is about 12 minutes long, and we'll open the phones for your contributions immediately after that. The phone number here in the studio is 469-0500. We'll talk to you then. My talk is beyond the roadrunner economy. And so once I say that, you all have an image in your head, and I think it's the same image I have. Wiley e. Coyote is chasing Roadrunner up the hill, and all of a sudden, Roadrunner pulls some little trick, and Coyote is suspended in space. And there's this moment when Coyote finally thinks to, you know, there's really nothing under me here, What's about to happen? And you all can draw your own inferences from that, but what, have, what can we learn about getting to that particular point? Well, it could be that we were going a little bit too fast. Um, it's obvious we didn't know where we were going. And when you look down, sometimes you don't even really know how far it is you're going to be following. Well, that's been our economy for the last 50 years, and definitely for the last 20 years. We've been running really fast. We've been going someplace. We don't really have a clue what we've been doing. And actually, if we want to take the, uh, the cartoon analogy to its final conclusion, we're actually chasing an illusion anyway. So why are we doing this? For the last um, 50 years, we have had the pleasure of anything from anywhere, anytime. So this is a Braeburn apple. I picked it up at the supermarket last night. Fresh from New Zealand. What more could we want? Um, how did, it, how did it happen that that's how we're doing our food, um, how we're eating? Well, we have been so lucky for the last 100, 150 years, we've developed all these great systems for plundering the geological and biological wealth of the planet. And we've been really, really good at it. So 150 years ago, Blake drilled an oil well in Pennsylvania, and wow, it was a hole 68 feet deep, and the oil was just pouring out on the ground. And this summer, we drilled one five miles below the surface, uh, below the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. And yeah, hey, the oil was just pouring out on the ground, too. We were really good at this stuff. The Great Plains, we crossed the Great Plains, this great biological diversity that's never going to be repeated on this continent, or it's going to take us a long time. It was so vast that we didn't know what to do with it, so we cut it all down. We plowed the eastern half of it up into corn and soybeans, and now, really, it's just corn. And the western half was wheat, except we figured out how to drill down for water. And now that's, our, uh, that's corn, too, because we need more corn, uh, apparently. And we've got this great complex system that moves stuff all over the place. And what's it based on? It's based on cheap energy, cheap oil. It's based on exploiting every resource available to us. So not only do we have peak oil coming at us, we have peak phosphorus coming at us. And on the flip side, sometimes we have too much of something, like too much nitrogen. We got really good at taking nitrogen out of the air where it belonged and putting it into the ground where it didn't belong. And when there's so much of it that it just kind of runs off and 
yeah, so what if we kill, you know, a couple thousand square miles of the Gulf of Mexico every summer? It's just, it's just nitrogen. It's just there. So I've been thinking for a long time about what is it that would be a different kind of way of approaching food? And, you know, I took food because that's the one that we deal with every day. We don't have a lot of choice about it. Well, water first, food second. After that, everything else is kind of optional. You can kind of work your way through it if you have to. And we've been lucky in Maine. We've had all these people doing an experiment for about 40 years now. So in 1970, I'll take you back, there was one farmer's market in Maine, in Portland. It's been going since the 1790s. And that was it. So if you wanted to go to a farmer's market and you didn't go see the three or four vendors who were hanging out in the remnants of the old Portland farmer's market, you were out of luck. If you wanted whole wheat flour in Maine in 1970, you drove to Boston because there was a natural food store in Boston and there were none in the state of Maine. There were no supermarkets selling whole wheat flour. There's, you know, why would anybody want to eat the brown part of the flour? Uh, there were no chefs who were featuring local food. So lots of you go to restaurants and all up and down the state of Maine. And there's a tremendous diversity of food available. Well, that was not there in 1970. I can tell you as somebody who grew up down east, you know, first you didn't go to restaurants and second, when you went to restaurants, you weren't seeing anything any different from what you're gonna see in the whole rest of the country. Organic farmers, well, um, about that time the organic movement really started and there were, wow, there were a dozen people in the whole state of Maine who were organic farmers. And now there are 400 certified farmers and processors and about, so it's 5% of the farms, 5% of the land base, 5% of the um, dairy farms, actually 20% of the dairy farms. And I go, wow, this is all good because we now have 95 farmers markets. We have CSAs, community supported agriculture. We have the first in the nation community supported fisheries. And wow, something like 5% of the population is eating this food. And I don't know about you, but I'm really not interested in standing over here in the uh, local and organic corner for the, the rest of my life and waving, hi, we're having fun over here. I'm really interested in this kind of food being available to everybody um, under the basic principle, enough for everyone always. That's sustainable, we can do that. And so how do we get there? First, we have to tell our stories. So here's another apple. Um, I did not stop at the supermarket. I walked across the, the drive to my orchard and picked this one. It's a black Oxford. So this was developed by a farmer in Paris, Maine in 1790. This particular apple comes from a cutting re repeated multiple times from a tree in Hollowell that was planted in 1792 and is still alive. So what are the common elements of this? Well. There's a face, you know, it, belong, it came from the Vaughn farm. That's where, that's where my tree came from. There's a place, Hollowell or Paris or Mount Vernon where my farm is. And what's different between this apple and that? Why should anyone care? Well, if you don't have refrigeration, but you have a root cellar, first, this is like a rock right now. I could throw it at you and hurt somebody, but I won't. Um, it's like a rock and it will be like a rock until Christmas or sometime after that when it'll start to soften. And sometime along January, February, March, here's an apple that you can eat in the winter without refrigeration. Well, that's not a very valuable trait right now, but it has all these characteristics. And pick any food, we can tell this little story 
And so we need to tell our stories. Wherever you are, whatever it is that you're eating, whatever it is that you're growing, we need to tell our stories. We need to make a real commitment. The simple one is $10 a week. If everybody in Maine spent $10 a week on local food, we'd increase the farm sales 20%. It's not a very big amount. You don't have to really stretch very far here. I know people who are stretching much further. We need to be true to our vision. And the one that I keep coming back to the last year or so is Rachel Carson. So two years from now, it's gonna be 50 years since Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. And what have we done? Well, we basically ignored her in many ways because the U.S. agriculture uses more pesticides and more um, toxic materials than ever before, just in smaller quantities per application. So yeah, we're getting a little more sophisticated about it, but how can we honor Rachel's vision? Well, we need to make the same kind of investment in biological and um, organic growing systems that we've made in the chemical growing systems for the last 50 years. And it just happens that Congress is gonna decide how to spend all that money for the next five years in the 2012 Farm Bill, and so here's our chance. You heard a little bit earlier about concentrated livestock. I just wanna remind you that we all shouldn't be shocked that when you put three birds in a cage this big for their entire life, that sometimes things go wrong. You know, and so salmonella happens, and the fact that 500 million eggs came out of this one egg factory and kind of permeated the entire US food supply is as much our fault as it is the owner's fault, um, because somewhere somebody was actually buying that food. And if we don't buy it, then it's not a problem, right? So in Europe, they've already banned those, those cage systems. They did it because Pippi Longstocking, the children's author, started a, a petition campaign in Denmark. And the Denmark said, we're done. And they moved on and pretty much the entire EU is on a schedule to be done with these battery cages. Why do we want to support it? Concentration. Some friends of mine at the University of Missouri did a little study looking at trends and said that somewhere right around now, five companies are gonna control the retail grocery market. Not in the United States. This is five companies are gonna control the retail grocery market in the entire world. Only one of them is a United States one. You can kind of guess which one that's likely to be. Um, again, why is it that we wanna be supporting and encouraging those? So, What's our strategy? I'm, I'm kind of with the poet Lou Welch. So Lou Welch was one of the beat poets. He wrote this poem, the Chicago poem about the evils of the industrial city. And I'm not gonna give you the whole thing, but I'll give you kind of the end of it. He says, I don't know what you're going to do about it, but as for me, I know what I'm going to do about it. I'm gonna walk away. Maybe a small part of it will die if I'm not around feeding it anymore. So, Part of what we have to do is just stop supporting the things that we don't believe in. We have to just step away. And so what does this new economy look like, the one that's kind of beyond the roadrunner economy? Well, if we can get Wiley E. Coyote to slow down a little bit, to be really clear about where it is he's going, and when he starts to fall, when we start to fall, there's someone there to pick us up, that's what we all need. Thank you.
Well, that was Russell Libby uh, doing a TED Talk in Portland back in 2010. Uh, my name's Dave Colson. This is Common Ground Radio on WERU, and I'm joined in the studio by Andrew Marshall and Melissa White Pillsbury. So I think one of the things that uh, is exciting and, and what I've always gotten from Russell is just this long view of, of, uh, of the world. And uh, I guess I should also mention that we, we are uh, open to your calls. Um, if you have thoughts and things to share, please uh, call in and, and talk to us. Um, the number is 866-625-9378. That's the toll-free number in the studio, or 866-625-WERU. Thank you, Melissa. So... I think uh, again, what I what what's obvious in this talk is Russell's kind of long view of things, and and not only I think his vision into the, the the future and the needs in the future, but his ability to kind of look back at the past and and uh, look at trends and and directions that that things have been going. Um, I read a quote the other day. Uh, I guess Goethe said that uh, those who can't access 3,000 years of history are living hand-to-mouth, and uh, Russell certainly never lived hand-to-mouth. Um, he, uh, he grew up um, in the state of Maine uh, in the Sorrento area and um, attended Bowdoin College, which uh, um, Andrew and, and Russell both shared, not at the same time, but uh, uh, at, at different times of their lives. And then uh, went on to uh, University of Maine um, to get uh, an economic, I believe it was an ag economic degree um, there. And uh, I think coming from um, being the eldest in his family and, and a, a family that's always been dedicated to service in the state of Maine. Um, Russell found his own place to, to fulfill that service and, uh, and it affected a lot of people, um, not only uh, uh, at Mafka and, and through the organic food movement, but uh, here in Maine, but also around the country. Um, and uh, it was very evident at uh, the memorial service for Russell in Mount Vernon when uh, not only were there many uh, community people from his own town, of uh, adopted town of Mount Vernon, but um, others from around the country that, that came and spoke at that. So those of us at Mofka uh, who were lucky enough to work on a daily basis with Russell got um, an amazing perspective and, and got a, a really Im impressive broad education in how to think about agriculture and how to think about the environment broadly speaking um, and it was an amazing combination of uh, realism cooperation um, and a, a a very philosophical approach that grounded his daily work, but um, he wasn't just a philosoph philosopher. He, he got things done, and um, and and I was lucky enough to be mentored in that. Um, but you know, the the day to day operation of Mafka didn't leave a whole lot of time for philosophizing, um, 
And uh, so what one of the gifts Russell gave us uh, every year, and he gave a lot of people this gift, was the gift of his poetry. So every December, his Christmas gift to folks would be uh, a compilation of the poetry that he had written um, over the past year or, or, um, or longer. And, um, and I've really been digging into that lately. Um, and so I have a f- few poems that, that I'd like to, to, to share with folks. Um, again, we'd love for um, other community members to, um, to have the opportunity to call in and, and really contribute to this discussion and, the, um, and, and this remembrance. And the phone lines are open now, and we'd, we'd encourage folks to call. The number, again, is 469-0500 or 866-625-9378. This poem is called Worth by Russell Libby from his compilation from 2009 called Along the Way. If you're going to farm a piece of land, you ought to farm it for all it's worth, says Tim Hassinger, Vice President, Dow AgroSciences. But I ask, for how many bluebirds it's worth? For how many monarchs? What price the elusive fireflies? I pulled the early peas today, tossing the vines in the compost bin. Then I carried the sack of tartary buckwheat from the barn. It was seed grown by Liz and Chris on their farm and sowed in the same way that the farmers have sowed since the beginning, palm up, fingers pointing in the direction that the seeds are thrown. And what is that worth? To hear the seeds meeting the ground, to look up and see the clouds that will bring rain tonight or tomorrow, and know next week the ground will be covered with pale green, triangle-shaped leaves six weeks before the white flowers will carry bees. Yeah, getting those gifts of the uh, of the booklets every year in the in the mail were uh, were great, and uh, <laughs> I I had the chance yesterday. I, uh, we were uh, doing as usual at Mafka, doing many meetings, and uh, I had a a phone uh, call I had to get on. So um, the easiest space to use that was available was uh, Russell's office, which is. Still, pretty much look, looks like he uh, set down his tea mug and and went out to uh, to talk to somebody and just hasn't returned to the office yet. And I have to say, I was uh, pretty distracted on the phone call. I, I spent most of the time kind of uh, you know looking around the room. And uh, those of you who may have um, visited Russell in his office at Mafka uh, kind of know. Um, what his room always kind of looked like, which was basically piles of things. Uh, he, he was an amazing reader. He, uh, he was kind of a speed reader, could get through, through um, large books really quickly. And I said, well, asked him one time, well, do you really remember what you're reading when you read so fast? And he said, oh, well, you know, if it's something that I really want to get something from, I'll just sit down and read it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is pretty amazing to me. I, I tend to be a slow reader, so. But um, yeah, sitting sitting at his desk and and looking around the room, uh, Russell had recently motive, uh, moved up to uh, 
another off another room within the office and uh folks uh helped him uh move his stuff up into the uh into the new space uh, this last year and it, it's kind of funny looking at uh, looking at piles because uh, they aren't labeled with um what things are about they're labeled with where they had uh, been been put in the or where they had accumulated in the office so the boxes would say things like under the desk to the left and um, it was pretty amazing at times when when you'd be talking with Russell and he'd say well hold on I, I have something about that and he'd rummage through a box and come up with a book or a or a paper or a news clipping or something that would uh, just absolutely pertain to whatever it is you, you were talking about at the moment um, but it was that uh, that curiosity and that that reading and that uh, that um, so helped I think to inform his his view and and to help direct others uh, in Mofka and other parts of the country you're listening to common ground radio on WERU today we're remembering Russell Libby who passed away last month. The phones are open and we welcome your contribution. Uh, call us at 469-0500. So I um, have been sort of combing through some of Russell's other writings um, and we're lucky enough to have a, a pretty large compilation of them at, at Mafka in the form of his monthly or quarterly editorials for the Maine Organic Farmer and Gardener. Um, and uh, a, a really strong theme emerges in, in those writings, um, and it's really exciting to see the evolution of those towards sort of a crystallization of, of thought that really was expressed in, in his TED Talk, which is this idea of food with a place and a taste. And what's the third one? <laughs> But that was his mantra. Um, face, place, and taste. Face, place, and thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I figured I'd, I'd alternate between reading poetry and reading some of his prose. Um, and uh, I'd like to excerpt um, part of his 2011 keynote at the Common Ground Fair. And at this point... Russell was um, was sick, and he knew it. Um, and um, true true to his form, he was pretty philosophical and serene about it. So this is a, a um, this is Russell using his own personal experience to to again try try to move the ball down down the field for the rest of us. He says. Put the public health first. The Hippocratic Oath translates roughly to first do no harm. We need a health system, a new health system that isn't about medical care after the fact, but it's about working towards making all of us healthy people in every way. I am deep in a journey through the medical system and appreciative of all the skills that the many doctors, nurses, and other technicians bring to the table. But in all my experiences, there's been almost no interest in my story and how I ended up with two cancer diagnoses in the past year. So I have to wonder 
beyond whatever genetic possibilities I was born with, where did these cancers come from? Well, I have a little light to shed on that. I was born in a paper company town, and it was filled with the smell of sulfur. I raked blueberries in commercial fields at the end of the era of DDT. I worked on a golf course where, where diazinon was commonly used and organophosphates and herbicides were applied. Some of you know that I was part of a body burden study testing 15 mainers for the presence of metals and a variety of industrial chemicals, and I tested high on many, despite a good diet and lifestyle through the years. One answer is that this issue of health is only partly a personal one. Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, these are systemic problems, and we need to talk about them that way. We need to get toxics out of the system, out of the food system, out of the consumer product system, out of the environment in general. That will, be moving, will mean moving to the precautionary principle with health as the standard. It will mean not just acknowledging that Rachel was right, but putting some serious research funding into alternative approaches. But we also have to acknowledge that life is a mystery. Western medicine is great at fixing things that are broken, but maybe not so good at figuring out why they're broken and helping us to prevent problems. Thanks. I'd like to remind you that you're listening to Common Ground, an hour on local food and agriculture, hosted by Mafka. It's the call-in show. Today we're remembering Russell Libby, our longtime executive director at Mafka, and um, legacy in Maine on being an advocate for organic agriculture and, and environmental health. We do have a caller on the line, so can you please um, state your name and where you're calling from? Yeah, good morning. This is Mavis. I'm in Sullivan. Hi, Mavis. Hi, I'm a tiny farmer, and um, although I'm too way too small to certify, um, uh, Mafka and and Russell Libby have had a big influence on my life and my process. Um, I never knew that he spent he was from or spent time in Sorrento, which is our sister city here. Um, you know, Russell is really kind of one of the gods of, of what we do, if I can use that word. Um, I, Although I didn't know him personally, I always sort of felt him as a benign presence, you know, um, and, uh, and benefited tremendously from, uh, from his contributions uh, through the magazine, etc. I learned about his death on Facebook, actually. Somebody put up... Um, the uh, the painting of uh, from people who tell the truth um, the series right Robert Shetterly's exactly yeah. um, and I was greatly saddened anyway thank you for this show well thank you for calling in yeah, thank things. you it's great yeah I think. <clears throat> There's a lot of people who um, uh, Russell definitely influenced that that may not have known him directly, and um, yeah, he was like a, a, a wonderful presence to know someone um, was out there and working on a lot of these issues. The portrait that Mavis referenced um, 
is is part of a series called I think I believe it's Americans Who Tell the Truth by mm-hmm. Robert Shetterly, and um, he came to Mafka um, at Russell's. Um, we had a pie social for him to to honor his service as executive director when he transitioned to a new role, and um, the portrait was revealed at that time, and um, it was it was a nice moment. And there's there's a quote on the the portrait. Um, that Robert chose out of lots of writings that he he read out of um, from Russell. We have to challenge the idea that contamination is just the price of living in the modern world. Our bodies don't have systems to process plastics or flame retardants or pesticides. If contamination is the price of modern society, modern society has failed us. We do have another call on the line. Give your name and where you're calling from, please. Hi, um, my name is Joan. I'm calling from Stockton Springs. Um, I I have known Russell for many years, and I have been touched and influenced deeply in many ways by him and by Mafka. <clears throat> and one brief personal memory from a bunch of years ago, probably, I don't know, 1996 or 7 or 8, I don't remember, um, around the time you, Moscow moved to um, its present site. Unity, yeah. Unity, yes, thank you. And um, the, the first barn, I believe, was being built. And it was open to volunteers. And a friend of mine and I, who are, were at that point probably in our late 50s, early 60s, and had never built a barn ever before in our lives, um, went to volunteer, and there was Russell volunteer, um, doing, working with us all, and we were really fumbling around, and we were having a really good time, but we were, we were being a pain in the neck, I think, <laughs> more than anything else. And there was Russell with all his incredible good humor and kindness that's that's the main thing just this incredible open spirited kindness that just was like pouring through him and we just you know he tolerated and loved really loved everybody's participation so that's a deep memory that i will hold for for a long time Oh, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, John. Well, thanks for that call. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know whether uh, I had uh, uh, had a chance to work with you, Joan, but uh, I, I was part of building some of those, helping build some of those barns with Russell as well. And uh, um, coming up on some weekends, and uh, of course, Russell worked all week doing whatever he needed to do to try and organize the new site and all the other things he did as executive director and then would come on weekends and help bang nails. And uh, luckily we did have some folks that kind of knew what they were doing and uh, Russell was really great at, as you say, at pulling people in and and getting them involved. And I, I have some great memories of kind of being up uh, in the rafters uh, joking with Russell and, and just basically having a really good time building those buildings. And even though he was giving up important family time or, or other things, um, uh, he, he was very dedicated to, to seeing that new site open. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Russell really gave his life to, um, to Mafka and the mission that Mafka served. Um, and uh, it's, it's really important to recognize uh, the sacrifices that his family made knowingly, I think. I think um, his wife, Marianne, and, and his daughters understood that, that they needed to share Russell perhaps a little bit more than they wanted to. Um, but uh, it was an incredible sacrifice, and, and we all really appreciate that. We have another, <clears throat> excuse me, caller on, the, <clears throat> caller on the line. Can you please give your name and where you're calling from? Hi, this is Paul from the Wayback Farm, and I have a little, uh, short little paragraph to read um, in honor of Russell from uh, The Northern Farm by Henry Veston. The seed catalogs are arriving again, and as I take them from the brown envelopes and study them at the kitchen table, I muse again on the dogmatic assertion which I often make that the countryman's relation to nature must never be anything else but an alliance. Alas, I know well enough that nature has her hostile moods, and I'm equally aware that we must often face and fight as we can her waywardness, her divine profusion, and her divine irrationality. Even then, I will have it, the alliance holds. When we begin to consider nature as something to be robbed greedily, like an unguarded treasure, or used as an enemy, we put ourselves in thought outside of nature, of which we are inescapably a part. Be it storm or flood, hail or fire, or the yielding furrow and the fruitful plain, an alliance it is, and that alliance is the cornerstone of our true humanity. Thanks so much for the opportunity today. Thank you for calling. Thanks, Paul. I'd like to remind folks that you're listening to Common Ground, an hour on local food and agriculture hosted by Mafka. Today we're um, reflecting on the life and legacy of Russell Libby, who passed away last month. And we welcome your calls. The number in the studio is 866 866- Six two five nine three seven eight. We're reading poetry and telling stories, um, reflecting on the impact and and legacy of of what Russell gave us and and left us. I remember, uh, she must have been a number of years ago now. Having Russell kind of um, show up on the farm, which he loved to do. Uh, drop-ins on folks and uh, always amazed me how you would mention someone or a farm or something and he would say oh that isn't that off of route something (laughs) in in this town and just his memory of all that we have another caller on the line Um, welcome give your name and where you're calling from hi I'm Blair and I'm calling from Rockport and um I just moved to Maine to farm two years ago, and I've been so supported and encouraged and equipped and trained by Mafka, and I didn't know Russell Libby personally, um, but just listening to your stories and talking to people and reading about him over the last few weeks, it's incredibly apparent how much we've all lost, and um, I was really struck listening this morning to his confidence that telling our stories um, and telling the stories of our food can be a change agent and that's inspiring because you know the the uh everything feels sort of so big 
what can you actually accomplish and that ability to let regular people um, feel they can make a difference by the choices they make and by the stories they tell and by paying attention. Um, so thank you for continuing to tell his story and letting us all know him a bit and learn from him through your stories. I think if anybody lives on through their contributions, it's clear he will. So thank you. Thanks, Blair. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, <clears throat> Russell has uh, helped to shape a, a lot of um, people's work and, and thoughts and farms uh, over the years. And uh, um, one of the um, places or, or one of the ways I think that was really great that uh, Russell worked in, uh, it's been kind of said that Russell was a, a, a leader, but he led from behind kind of... Uh, meaning that he was often a catalyst for things to happen, but it uh, wasn't often the person standing in front um, willing to take the credit for things that he actually had a, a big part of. And um, one of them that, that I had direct experience with was uh, a number of years ago when we were trying to access um, certain markets on our farm that... Um, it was the beginning of a lot of the food safety issues and food recalls and things of a, a few years ago. And um, we were talking about uh, different kinds of food safety regulations and what that all meant. And um, Russell and I were chatting about it. And, um, of course, one of the things he immediately saw was uh, this was often all about um, blaming livestock or... Um, uh, wild things around the farm, wildlife or, or other things around the farm. And really in the whole food safety debate, um, anything to do with the toxins and toxicity of, of chemicals, pollution and so on was kind of left out of all of that as if, uh, you know, that wasn't a consideration in, in food safety. But I did mention... Uh, back then that, that we were having trouble accessing some markets and, and some of the rules that were going on. And and uh, through that, Russell um, connected with other folks um, within the movement, particularly uh, Brian Snyder, who's uh, the executive director of the Pennsylvania Sustainable Agriculture Association down in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, slowly the two of them began to look into a lot of these pieces and um, began to engage uh, folks down in D.C., um, staff members and senators and congressmen over over the food safety legislation that was moving through Congress at the time, which, which didn't seem to take into account really anything uh, in terms of small farms and, and scale-appropriate kind of legislation and uh, risk management or, or even assessment of risk. And um, so quietly, and again, behind the scenes, I, I, think, I don't think that a lot of the country knows just how much we owe Russell in terms of, of the, the legislation that ended up being passed and the recognition that, that small and local farms are a, a whole different kind of ballgame. And, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the final outcome was, was kind of this amendment that was put in by um, 
Senator Tester from out west and uh, basically um, helped to exempt some of the smallest operations and <clears throat> be basically began to set up some of the rules so that uh, the definitions of things uh, didn't lump a 14,000-acre uh, California salad farm in the same boat with my little uh, three-acre uh, locally marketed uh, vegetables. So, yeah, um, we owe Russell a, a big debt of gratitude on, on that whole piece. And that that's just one of many stories of that type that I've heard. Yeah, it really was pretty astonishing and impressive to see how uh, facilely Russell managed that whole situation. Um, his ability to, I mean, he was a, a voracious consumer of all types of of material, um, but the uh, the food safety stuff was really dense and pretty opaque, and and his ability to um, to digest it, to understand what it meant for for small farmers. Um, and to really point out the the fundamental flaws in in that uh, original piece of legislation, and to really work quietly and steadfastly to uh, make a change in it was uh, was really amazing to watch. We have another caller on the line. Can you give your name and where you're calling from? Hi, my name is Rosanna Rich. Um, from Indian Meadow Herbals and Ridge Farm. And uh, my business partner, Nancy Lowry, and I were privileged to have Russ Libby on our team when uh, we won one of the grants from Farms for the Future. And I just want to say that I know that Russ gave the kind of support, wisdom, and business acumen to people all over the state, as he did with us. We were, able, we were just privileged to have him in a very special way for a period of time. Um, but I know that he did that everywhere with people because it was just his way and his nature, and he had a way of doing it that was so loving and accepting. Like, you just loved it when he, you know, had something to offer, whatever it was. And um, we were very, very privileged. And I know there are many, many people in this state who share that same honor. And we were lucky to have them for the time we did. Yes. Um, thanks. That, that's, that's so true. And you, you probably, if you had a chance to see Russell kind of working numbers and things he he was so quick at stuff sometimes uh, how he could work things out and and i think the part that always amazed me was even when he was kind of trying to give you the the reality of what it is you were trying to do he did it in a way that made you feel good about it <laughs> yeah he was he was an extraordinarily amazing person um you know i know we all didn't miss him but um we should probably focus more on how privileged we were to have him for as long as we did. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your call. I'd like to remind you that you're listening to Common Ground, an hour on local food and agriculture hosted by MOFCA. Today we're um, remembering and, and honoring the life and, and legacy and work of Russell Libby. 
who uh, passed away last month um, after a, a battle with long battle with cancer. Um, we're sharing poetry and, and stories and um, and we welcome your calls um, at eight in the studio eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Andrew's going to read another poem of Russell's poems. So this is called Listening. It's again from his collection uh, from 2009 called Along the Way. Sundown a half an hour now, and the ground is firmed, almost refrozen for the night. In his birthday card, I reminded Dad that that for over 40 years this week, when day finally exceeds night, brings the red wings to the pond at the bottom of the hill and he should watch for them around the alders near the dam. Meanwhile, I'll listen each evening for that same familiar call to carry from the lake up to the barn, 100 miles and many years away. Attending Russell's memorial last month, um, it was really nice touching really to to hear you know my perspective of russell has you know been through the lens of mafka and his work at mafka primarily but you know it was really powerful to 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 be there in the presence of a broad much broader community that that russell had um an impact on um and here you know basically the same same sentiments that we all feel you know through mafka but just repeated over and over about you know, Russell is a neighbor and Russell is a friend and Russell is a golfing partner and it was just really nice. It was very touching, yes. And one of the things that was brought up <clears throat> is uh, the competitive streak that Russell had. And uh, uh, here's another piece of his... Um, oh, we can, we have another caller. Yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll do that we piece can get to after there. this call. Thanks. Um, Welcome to the, the show. Give your first name and where you're calling from. Uh, my name is Jim. I live in Garland. And um, about 10 years ago, there was a meeting here in town uh, with um, a number of MOFCA members. Uh, about 60 people came, and Russell was, uh, he wasn't the keynote speaker, but he, uh, he was there for support. And there was a lot of conversation, and the, the afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, and it lasted quite a long time. And Russell just stayed and talked to a variety of people. But uh, when most people had drifted away, he and I got into a conversation. And he said, um, this is a really nice old Grange Hall. He said, do you know when it was built? And I said, uh, in the 1880s. And, and it has a church that was built a little before that next door. And uh, that led us to the conversation of there were any models at... Uh, what the vision could be for small farms and, and organic farming. And it was that time that we uh, kind of congealed on uh, 1880 in that there, um, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't much uh, petroleum or fossil fuels being used. There were a lot of small farms. Um, there were... Um, you know, 40-acre farms, and uh, a lot of work was done by hand or horses and oxen. But one of the interesting things was you could walk or ride a horse 10 miles to Dexter and get on a train and go 
to Farmington or Portland or Boston or Chicago, and we just uh, mused about that as being uh, kind of a forgotten model. Uh, while we look to the future, uh, you can kind of look back and see that uh, things were pretty good. Uh, and I admired his, um, I don't know whether you would call it a renaissance uh, type of person, you know, obviously we were reading his poetry and looking at his art, and but um, he he looked at history, and uh, he was just uh, uh, kind of that uh, broad uh, intellect that uh, was present back then at that time when uh, lots of things were made by hand beautifully, and we took our time and we cared um, for our neighbors and we visited a lot. And I just remember that conversation, and it, um, I, I'm reminded of that, and I just wanted to share that. Thanks very much for your call. That's great. Uh, so here's another piece of prose of Russell's. Um, this is from a, uh, a collection called Balance, a late pastoral, and I'm not sure of the year of it. 2007, I guess it is. Um, this is titled, The Mount Vernon Maple Syrup Makers Club Continues Not to Meet Pretty Much as Expected. At one point, the only members were Milton and his daughter. Since Milton is never certain next year is likely, he taps heavy. Six buckets aren't unusual, especially on trees he doesn't own. Now I count ten of us likely to tap this year. One's commercial, two are but two are but hide it and the rest are just having fun waiting for the snow to melt i'm in i'm informal membership secretary since i tend to inspect closely as i drive around town there's a very early entrance in the race for first syrup and it's not me half february and wendy has brand new bright blue tubing hanging from a dozen maples near her driveway she seems a bit optimistic this morning's wind still had a bitter bite, and the sheltered spots where sun hits the road stayed frozen all day. I'm changing strategies this year. More buckets, fewer weeks. Start late, concentrate the work, then move on to building projects and seedlings. That's what maple is good for. The steam and the smell of the syrup making keep you on a little sugar high for a few weeks. After lugging a ton of sap through the snow in five-gallon buckets, you start to get a realistic view of the possibilities ahead. Come March, we'll pull our taps, and the club, which never meets and exists only in my mind, will stand adjourned for another year. I already know the results of this year's competition. More maple syrup, fewer summer projects, a smaller garden. I'm not sure that ever happened. <laughs> Um, as long as we're on the sort of winter turning to spring theme, uh, here's a brief poem called Something Happened. We just kind of keep this image in our mind as the temperature dips again tonight. Something happened once the sun hit the first few feet of the garden. Frost melting away, a smell, scent of spring earth alive after so long quiet snow. We 
we've been remembering Russell Libby today, um, and we've just got a few minutes left, so I want to make sure that we mention that we are having um, a gathering at Mafka this weekend on Sunday, and um, we'll be celebrating and, and remembering Russell's life, kind of, you know, much like we are, we have been this morning. Um, it starts at 2 o'clock, it'll be um, until 4, and with a, a potluck um, refreshments. refreshments, thank you, I knew there was a special word, um, at 3, so... Um, you're welcome to attend, and um, it's at Mafka's Education Center in Unity. Um, and you can go to our website for directions if you need them. Um, and you know, we look forward to that being a nice opportunity to to continue on this um, thread. Dave, do you have any <coughs> final? Anecdotes, <laughs> thoughts. Thought for sure you'd tell the nail story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have a few stories of, of Russell that uh, everybody always expects me to uh, to do. Do you have a, another poem? Well, I figured maybe we could end with a brief poem by Wendell Berry. Great, um, since Russell's work resonates so much with Wendell's, and it'd be nice to have him have the last word here. When despair for the world. This is called the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For the time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Beautiful. I know Wendell was always a mentor and and uh, and a hero of Russell's, and uh, as he became uh, a mentor and a hero to many of us. So, um, I guess we'll kind of wrap up by by saying thank you and and. Uh, um, helping us to, to remember and um, we look forward to um, hearing more from folks. Yeah, we'll be back again next month uh, for the show on the first Friday of February um, right here on WERU at 10 a.m. the first Friday. I don't know the date. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, 